0: Serving the Lord together, and I just—I'm so thankful for for each of you in that way, and uh, a number of people that have been a blessing to our church this week. I'm just thankful for that. If you would look at Isaiah tonight, we're going to do something a little different to start. I'm going to give you a few minutes here at the beginning, rather than breaking part at the end. You have your lesson sheet there. There's some space at the bottom and out to the side. You can jot down some personal notes or as the Lord kind of point some things out to you. This is very simply, pretty much just a simple outline of the rest of the passage that we began this morning. And for the last few weeks, we've been covering some different questions and a number of different things. And before that, we went through our, our um, exchange gospel Bible study and encouraging you to study God's word with others and to bring people to Christ in that way. And I hope that you're doing that. I know of a couple people that have already begun to Uh, study that with others, particularly with uh, one that's studying with somebody that they work with and another with some family members and another with a friend and and studying through those things and trying to point people to the gospel. And so I hope that you're continuing to do that. Uh, But over the next few weeks, we're kind of going to extend this study. We have this Sunday, next Sunday, and then the final Sunday is Christmas morning. And uh, we're looking at these ideas, these words for people that are waiting And I hope that we emphasize it in the right way that we are waiting for the return of Jesus just as real as His first coming and in a way as sudden as it was that He sort of burst onto the scene but yet as a baby. And so He went sort of unknown for quite a while other than to a select few people that knew who He was even as a young infant and as a child. And then eventually, 30 years sort of later, He sort of... Bursts onto the scene in ministry, but when Jesus returns again, it won't be a fade. It will be a glorious, triumphant return, and we're thankful and we're looking toward that. But how should we look toward it? And that's sort of what we're looking at these next few weeks: Sunday morning, Sunday evening, even this Wednesday night, as we finish Habakkuk, is sort of uh, kind of going to carry in through some of the study and tie in. And so, I want to look at this tonight. It's extension of this morning, rather than try to tackle the whole chapter all in one this morning's word or thought was comfort and tonight we're looking at this thought of being renewed or finding renewal because the truth is and those two things sort of tie together don't they when you think of comfort and we kind of picture the uh, um, the physical aspect of comfort maybe uh, relaxing at home, laying in bed, uh, going on vacation, the holidays. Some parts of that are stressful, but there's a, a different element to it. You seek sort of your own comfort a little bit more during those days than you would a, a normal work day or during a normal week. <clears throat> and we seek that comfort, and we find sometimes that the result of it is that it renews us. And that we find comfort in uh, physical things It can physically Renew us. Well, the same is true with what God presents in His Word in Isaiah 40, that He offers comfort, and that ultimately, when we find comfort in the right place, that it brings into our life renewal, uh, renewal and being renewed by the proper and the right things. And so tonight, I think it will take us just a few minutes. But if you would look down at verse number 12, and what I would like for us to do, if you're sitting near somebody, that's great. Just do it with the person sitting near you. If there's somebody else near you that uh, doesn't have somebody that's sitting by, then slide over and, and sit with them. And I'd like to, to read this out loud together uh, as groups for a few minutes. Isaiah 40, verse 12 down through verse 31. That means that there's 20 verses, and so you can split them up and do five. If there's two of you. You can just rotate five, five, five all the way through. Uh, if there's a couple of you, you can do ten or however you want to break that up. I want you to read those things together and then take a couple of minutes. If you're fast readers and you finish everybody else, jot down a few things that you note about the greatness or the goodness of God or whatever stands out to you about this particular passage. You can discuss that there for a moment. But we'll take just three or four minutes. And whoever you're sitting with or you slide across and sit with somebody else and uh, uh, introduce yourself if you don't know them and sit for a moment and uh, read this out loud, verse 12 down through verse number 31, and uh, when we finish reading that we'll come back tonight and we'll study that together, okay? So do that now, and uh, then in a couple minutes we'll come back and uh, look through this passage as a whole. All right. I think we basically, sounds like, made our way through most of it. You've been able to read through the passage together, and hopefully that's helpful. We'll spend a little bit of time in prayer tonight at the end, so hopefully you like whoever you were sitting by, because uh, you'll read the Bible tonight and pray with them in just a few moments. So I want you to take, if you would, your lesson sheet there tonight, and uh, just this is just sort of a guide, a skeleton structure to the chapter. There's nothing novel or amazingly transformative necessarily about the outline in particular, but it just guides us through the passage. Isaiah is a big book, one of the longest books in all of Scripture. And uh, as I mentioned this morning, we're coming to a pivot point in the book itself. And as I was studying this week, I came across somebody who mentioned, and they kind of illustrated it this way. It was actually kind of a jarring illustration to begin. And uh, they said, imagine if you would for a moment, And and most of the people in the room can remember uh, 9, 9-11, nine most of us can remember where we were, what we were doing. I was in the uh, ninth grade, I believe it was, 8th or ninth grade, and I was down in my uh, class, and I got called to the office all of a sudden, which was not usually a great thing at that stage in my life, but I got called to the office, and my dad was on the other side of the phone. This was before a whole lot of Internet. When I tell my kids this, or teenagers this, that kind of thing, they look at me like I have three heads and uh, I said, "Oh my goodness, I feel I'm feeling old." But they called me, and dad Dad was listening to the radio. He was on the way back from a, a meeting or a, a funeral or some something with ministry stuff. I don't remember exactly what it was. But he had a cell phone, so I'm not that old. Uh, but he had a cell phone, and he called. And uh, as he called, he said, "I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go in my office." And his office was back in the back of the elementary. He said, "Go out, get a key for mom. Go in my office." And uh, talk about extra privilege, I guess, as being a staff kid. But he was trying to figure out what in the world was going on. Because where he was, the radio was going in and out. Nobody knew exactly what was going on or who was in danger or who wasn't in danger. And uh, he said, I go in my office. He had this little tiny 8-inch box TV that had a VCR built in the bottom of it and two you know, 15-foot-long antennas sticking out of each side of it, it looked like. And so I want you to turn that on. And just turn it to any channel and tell me what you see. Well, it got like three channels, so that wasn't too difficult. And I turned it on, and uh, I remember the first tower had been struck. And I turned TV on, and about 30 seconds later, the second tower had uh, been hit. And um, so I was kind of, I was on the phone with him in his office, kind of relaying it. And we just I just kind of stood there for uh, 15, 16 minutes, probably 20 minutes. I don't even know how long, just talking with him and he was kind of reassuring me that things are okay uh, he was trying to figure out what was going on and it was somebody in danger he was a little further away than normal for that time in the morning and we were talking back and forth and he was trying once once he kind of realized what was going on he was trying to calm me and and at the same time we were talking back and forth I'll never forget that conversation and there was some comfort in it and and but also some nervousness and he was trying to kind of renew me i'm a young young guy at that point back and forth i remember finally we we prayed on the phone uh when we when we finished the conversation we prayed he said i'm gonna be back soon and uh when i get back i'll come check on you and um so i went back to class i remember telling my classmates in a break kind of what had happened and they laughed at me they thought i was lying i was you know known for being joking around sometimes about things i'm like what do you think of me? Do you think I would joke about something like this, and we talk back and forth? And I remember in those days the uncertainty of not knowing what was coming next. And uh, I read came across this illustration for what the people of Israel kind of experienced in their day. And they said, imagine with me that 9 11 happened, and the next day, uh, November 12th, the same thing happened in Los Angeles. And then November 13th, it happened in Miami and Dallas. And then November 14th, it happened in Atlanta and Houston and Nashville and Kansas City. And then uh, November 15th, or excuse me, September 15th, and then it just one right after the other. The next happened, the next happened, the next happened. And then even months later, uh, our streets were lined with foreign militia that were bringing us out of our homes putting us on ships and planes and taking us far across the world from where we had ever been and that was sort of the start of it all and we were totally taken somewhere else put into a different society where we didn't really know the language we didn't know the culture uh, the religion wasn't the same and and just imagine having to live that out for year after year and decade after decade and that is a small illustration, and it would be difficult for us to even imagine that. Because as horrific as that moment was in September 11th, I don't know, you, I, especially as a young man, I never really felt like, well, tomorrow this could all end. I felt like bad things could happen. But it never felt like everything in my life is going to be just taken away tomorrow. But the people of Israel felt exactly that. They had been attacked, they had been besieged, and then eventually their homeland was totally decimated, destroyed, and they were removed and placed in a different culture, a different language, a different uh, system of religion, all these things, all while they proclaimed trust and faith in the God who was supposed to be the real, true God. And yet they were experiencing all of these difficult things, we're going to focus mainly tonight on the end of the chapter but this book or this chapter is the pivot point of the book in which God is saying I am still in control now he writes this Isaiah writes this decades before um, this is really going to become applicable at the end of the Babylonian exile so the timelines even kind of difficult to understand or really follow along but imagine sitting reading the words of one of God's prophets to your people written decades before that says, comfort, take comfort as we studied this morning. That God is in control and whatever God says is going to stay. All flesh is going to be revealed by the glory of the Lord because God's mouth has spoken it. Everything else fades. God's word stands forever. And there's comfort in those words, but there's also this sense of, Yeah, I don't know if this is true. It sounds beautiful, but I'm living in Babylon. I'm not at home. And when I go outside, people speak a language that I wasn't taught when I grew up. And when I talk to my parents, they tell me about You know Their parents who lived years ago in Jerusalem in the glory and the splendor of God's kingdom and His temple, and now God doesn't have any of those things. His people are scattered amongst the enemy. They seem like they're the ones that are powerful. They seem like they're the ones that are in control. And so God speaks to them and says, my message to you is going to be comfort. But comfort only really can be had when the person offering it has the ability to control and establish it. Imagine giving your child comfort. It is one thing to be able to pick them up in the silence or the quietness of your home after they have a, a bad dream or they fall and you're in control. You're bigger than they are. And you kind of surround them in their world and you take them and you can offer comfort because you're bigger than they are, you're greater than they are, and there's nothing really assaulting you. Imagine trying to pick up a child in the midst of a war zone or a battle zone or in the middle of an accident or something catastrophic or there's a large storm or a hurricane or a tornado. There's some comfort that can be offered, but ultimately there's aspects of that that you are not in control of. So that comfort, while maybe soothing for a moment, can only go so far. But the comfort of God is infinite and eternal. And God spoke to us this morning in the first 11 verses saying, you can take comfort because I love you. You're still my people. I'm not at war with you. I'm going, I have forgiven you because I'm going to pay for the penalty for your sin. My word will hold forever. And I'm going to treat you as a shepherd and gather you to myself Those of you that are vulnerable and hurt, those that are with child, as it would describe, those that cannot move, he's speaking of sheep or illustrating it with sheep, those that can't move easily about, I'm going to tenderly care for you. And that's a great message, but it has to be backed up by someone or something that is actually in control. And that tonight is the next portion of the passage. That's what God establishes in verse 12 down through the end of the chapter, So let's look, if you would, at it, and we'll just point out, we're going to kind of move quickly, verse 12 through verse 27, they're sort of illustrative sake, and then he really asks kind of a pensive question when he gets to the end of the chapter, but notice, if you would, in verse 12, it says, he asks questions about himself, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, meted out the heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighted the mountains in scales, the hills, the balance. In other words, he's saying, who, who knows how many fluid ounces of water there are in the ocean? Who knows the length of the skies and places the clouds there? Notice verse 13. Who's directed the Spirit of the Lord or being His counselor hath taught Him? He's, who taught the Lord anything? You notice when, when people are educated or they're taught something, there's a bent in that teaching based on whoever taught it. And so depending on who's teaching you, think about the easily fashioned mind of a little child. The wrong person gets a hold of the mind of a child with good intention by the child. They can be completely misinformed and be completely wrong on any number of things because they've been taught in an incorrect way. But the question here is impactful. It says, who who taught God anything? Who incorrectly influenced Him? Who could possibly point him the wrong direction? No one, because God is the source and infinite of all knowledge. He's the one that is all wise, all knowing. He doesn't take counsel in anyone. Verse 14. No one instructs or teaches him. He is over all of creation. Then notice in verse 15 Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, counted as a small dust of the balance. Behold, He taketh the isles up as a little thing. Verse 17, All nations before Him are as nothing, and they are counted to Him as less than nothing in vanity. Now don't mishear that. It's not saying that God does not care for the nations. This is not God's view. He's not belittling them. They are being compared to Him in this verse. So this is not God's spirit towards people and nations. It's not saying He doesn't care. It is saying in comparison, nations like Babylon, Rome, Greece, Russia, China, America, the, the masses of people, the billions of people in this world, when measured next to God, there is no comparing. Notice he says they're like dust on the scales or on dust on the balance. Imagine, he says, it, it kind of gives the picture of all the people of the world and you're seeing whose influence weighs out the most. And imagine the old-timey balance scales and he says you're dripping some, some gold or some dust right on the edge of it and it just barely teeters and it weighs down to one side. It's as if you just drop this magnificent piece of rock or whatever it may be on the other side. There is no comparison. God is so much greater than all else. So he compares himself to creation. He says, hey, I'm in control of creation. He compares himself to the nations and says, I'm in control of the nations. I know all things. No one has influenced me or given me the wrong opinion of Israel. Aren't you glad? that no one can influence God's opinion of you. I'm glad, because I I know that if somebody was able to get a hold of God's ear about me, it might be my wife or kids at time, and they were able to really convince the Lord what they think of me at different points in life, or you or whoever it may be, I am glad that God's opinion of me is not based on the worst of me that other men know. He already knows the worst of me. And yet he thinks on me and loves me and cares for me. Notice verse eighteen. Notice this question: To whom then will you liken God? Or and likewise, uh, will you compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no uh, hath no oblation, chooseth a tree that he will <clears throat> that will not rot. He seeketh Unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have you not known, have you not heard, hath it not been told you from... The beginning, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bring the princes, of, uh, bring the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of all the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth." And He shall blow upon them, and they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. He says there is no one else that compares to God. And so there is no one else. God alone is in control. And so look at the beauty of this passage <clears throat> as it's a prophecy looking forward to the Messiah, but ultimately the correction of the earth through Jesus. And He says take comfort in this because and you can take real comfort because God is in control of all creation. He's in control of all nations and people. Now imagine, he's comparing these people that are living there in Babylon. They come out and they see this humongous spire that Nebuchadnezzar has built to himself. This massive gold thing. And they think, we're never getting out of here. I don't care what Isaiah said. Isaiah didn't see the walls of Babylon that are 33 feet Thick in some places they're impenetrable no one can conquer we're never escaping look he's got a furnace that he can destroy his enemies in he has made rules that everyone has to bow down whenever they hear music and whenever he fancies they have to do whatever he says he has a statue built to himself and god says just think about it for a moment They're able to take wood that can't live or breathe and they're able to take stone and they cover it with something shiny and that's the extent of their God's power and control. He says, I, on the other hand, am over all things. And he kind of flips Israel's view on its head. He says, you see everything that is big and shiny and you think, my God has no control here. And he says, actually, I'm just asking you to look at it again. Those things have no eternal control of anything in this world. And then he finishes, he says, God is in control. And so our focus, verses 25 and 26, should be on Him. To whom then we liken me, shall I be equal? Sayeth the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on Him. And behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number, He calls them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for he is strong in power, not one faileth. He says, look around you at everything that's there. God created it all. He is over all people and all things. And he's comforting Israel saying, look, you feel like you have been locked away and that the world has forgotten about you. And think about it, even in the world in that day, the communication, there was really an inability to be able to communicate quickly, and depending on who was in control of certain things, there'd be inability to communicate at all. And he's saying, around Israel could be thinking, we are just the smallest, little, most insignificant, meaningless little nation that has now been swallowed up by this great nation, and nobody else in the world really knows that we're even here and what's going on. We've been absorbed by all of this. God says, look around, I created it all. I'm in control. And in the moment of their darkness and their desperation, when they look around at the world around them and think, there's there's no way, there's no way this is ever going to be overcome. God steps into the world and says, actually, I am over it already. I want you to notice, if you would, the kind of last thing is what we're going to focus on these last few verses. That God reminds Himself or reminds us of a truth that we must all learn and lean into about Himself and about ourselves. What does He teach us about Himself? He kind of reiterates, but He begins this with a question. God's message, it says, we put it there in your notes, is this to the worn out, to the jaded, and to the discouraged, and that's exactly what God's people would have been at that moment, at that time. We have been laboring for decades they, they lived in they would have known the story or the history of their ancestors and their fathers that dwelt in obscurity and slavery just one small family of uh, Jacob of Israel and then through Joseph they're brought into Egypt you know a few dozen within their family and then their children and a few generations down the line and they kind of grow into this nation but under and in slavery and in servitude to Egypt for 400 years. And these people are looking back thinking, we've only made it 70 years into this. This is going They're going to be jaded to God's will and what is around them. They're going to be discouraged by what's going on that they can see in their lives. And notice what God does. He presents a problem, verse 27, by asking a question. He says, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel? Where it says... Sayest and speakest, the term there in the ending, it's, it's a tense that means, cont- it's a continuous tense. It might even be said this way, why do you keep saying? Why are you continually speaking? And what do they keep saying? Notice the end of the verse. My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. Notice the two phrases he says that, that they're asking. He says, my way is hid from the Lord. My life, evidently God isn't watching. Babylon has covered me up and and he's not paying attention to what's going on in my life. Notice he says in my judgment, the one that he's ultimately he must not be in control of who has say in my life. Do you ever you ever feel like that? Like you say, I don't know exactly who or what is controlling the aspects of my life, but it is certainly not me. And then there's other moments where you feel like I don't know who or what it is but it does not feel like it could be God. Like how could God have good intentions for what's happening or what's going on in the world around me, but in my life personally? Notice he asks in verse 27, notice who is speaking. It's God speaking. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel? Why do you ask these questions? Why are you saying, I'm hidden from God and He doesn't have control or judgment over my life? And it's interesting. He answers his own question. And he answers his question because he knows exactly why we feel this way. I mean, think, think about it. Why Why would Israel feel this way? Why would they say this? Anybody? Why, why would they feel this way? We've talked a little bit about it. Because they're looking at the circumstance around them. Because they can't see anything that God is doing in their lives. All they see is the punishment or the judgment of their sin and the control of all those around. They're looking at their circumstance. And when looking at their circumstance, they ask the question, is God really in control of these things? And then notice God's response. Verse 28. Hast thou not known and hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. Notice, notice his answer here. He doesn't address their circumstance. Now, he is going to prophesy. He has, in a way, already, the first part of Isaiah 40. He's already prophesied what he's going to eventually do. That everyone's going to see the glory of the Lord. And you're going to read through, if you read through the rest of Isaiah, Isaiah 40-40, 43 is some dialogue back and forth. It's it's the beginning of kind of a historical moment. But then it gets into the Messianic uh, chapters. And you think about Isaiah 53, that the just very clear presentation of this Messiah that's going to come, that He's going to be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, our chastisement is going to be laid on Him. He is going to carry it for us all. We're as sheep without a shepherd. We're lost without Him. And it's going to give these beautiful pictures of the Messiah. He's eventually going to get to that. But notice He doesn't begin with that. He doesn't say... Why are you asking if I'm not in control? God doesn't try... Notice this. God doesn't try to defend their circumstance. And isn't that interesting? Because it's often what we want. Wouldn't you feel better about the circumstance of your life sometimes if God would just explain to you what it is that He's doing? And sometimes God, in graceful mercy, will do that. Sometimes He'll make it very clear to us This is exactly what I'm doing, and this is exactly why I'm doing it. But quite often, we have what we have in Isaiah 40, where he says, why are you asking if I'm in control of your life? And then he goes on, and he he does not defend the circumstance that he's placed them in, and he does not defend how he has acted toward them, or what he has allowed to come into their life. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care, but he is God, and he is over all. And his answer to them is not well sorry i didn 't give you enough explanation. He had given them plenty of explanation you 're going into captivity isaiah one through verse three isaiah chapter one through chapter thirty nine you 're going into captivity, and here is why he 'd given them plenty of warning, but when they actually face the deep and dark circumstance of life. God was not required to explain every detail to defend himself or to apologize to them. It wasn't required because he is God. And notice what his explanation is. He doesn't speak in verse 28 about their circumstance. He speaks about his character. And notice what it says through the verse and you see the three four, four things there that he teaches about himself. He says I am your creator. Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, from beginning to end, Alpha Omega, Creator of all things. He is the Creator. Then notice the next phrase, He fainteth not, neither is weary. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get weary. He doesn't lose His grip. Have you ever done something that, you know, you're unusual? My my brother is, uh, my youngest brother, if you... Know him, John. He is. He's been an athlete all of his life. He's been in in and out of the military and, and private contracting and different things. In the last few years, he's worked in in uh, kind of trucking and in logistics industry and a number of things. But he's still a fairly fit guy. He's in shape and you know different things. And he is. He's going to. Um, he's moving to Florida tomorrow morning. He's at a job opportunity. They're moving down uh, to the Jacksonville area and so he came by this afternoon and we were talking to See, seeing him was asking how he's doing he's like I got up this morning he's like and I was so sore he's like I got to have to rest just to be able to drive to Florida tomorrow and I'm looking at him and he's like you know the rippling example of masculine physique I mean he just is it just seems like he doesn't even have to work for it but he, I I mean I, he does but he did something that 's unusual to him yesterday he wasn 't lifting weights he wasn 't doing push ups he wasn 't doing his you know combat workouts he wasn 't doing all those things he was carrying boxes and beds and mattresses and all the weird things that were never meant to be really carried or moved more than one place and he he's doing all that and he said i am so sore and he was talking about having to carry certain things out and he was standing there waiting for others to load and kind of losing his grip on one thing or another i teased him you know about getting old of course he's by no means getting old but i teased him about that But it made me think, as I was thinking about studying for tonight, it talks about even the the youth and the young, they faint and grow weary. And there's things that if you're not accustomed to, you're carrying it. And all of a sudden, it's just involuntary. You ever have that involuntarily? Your hands just begin to let go. It's saying that of God, there's no circumstance of your life that catches Him off guard that He can't maintain for any length of time. He has the hold and He never lets go. He's never weary. He's never faint. Even though we are, notice he 's on an everlasting timeline, neither is weary. there is no searching of his understanding we can 't fathom how he understands our circumstance better than we do. Have you ever done that to the lord like you 're like lord you 're so far up there it 's like mission control you know when they call back and forth from space, and you know i 'm intrigued by. The, the lunar landings and now they've sent some things to Mars and it communicates back and forth and they're watching these different things and there's people radioing back when they landed on the moon. This is what we see and this is what we hear. And it's They're not there. They're just having to rely on what's being told and they can look at their instruments and say, well, it looks like this is what's happening thousands and thousands of miles away. What do you see? You notice God doesn't have to do that. It's not God's up there. And we have to call to him in prayer to to fill him in on the details of what's happening on earth. His understanding cannot be searched. He understands our circumstance better than we do. And notice what he does. Verse 29, you know, typically, sometimes the greatness of people and the splendor and the glory of someone is found in, in their separation from others it's found in their ability to keep others at bay that's why famous people wealthy people ruling people some of the glory is that they're inaccessible the queen of england passed you know a few weeks or months ago however long it was i did not know i did not watch the funeral or the wedding um just had other things to do and like work and um so you know we I was disappointed I didn't get, even get invited to it, and I've read I've read things about the queen, and I've even read things about England. I'm very familiar with both and how it works, and I got no invitation to that, and neither did any of you. In fact, very few people actually did, from what I hear. Why? Because part of the glory and splendor of that position is that it is distant from all those that are subject to it. But with God, it's quite the opposite. It is that He is distant in character and nature, but that He is close in relationship. Because notice what He says in verse 29. It talks about how great He is in verse 28. He is great. He he doesn't faint. He doesn't get weary, verse 29. And He gives power to those that are. To those that are faint. And to them that have no might. He increases strength. You know, in any sort of other aspect of life, you know, like if you... Watch a sporting event, and one boxer has worked out, or a football team, or whatever it may be then they 've worked out they 've put in the training they 've done the planning, they have all the plays, they have the game plan they 're in great shape, and the other team is lazy and doesn 't get there, or they have a random sickness the week before, or you know the flu bug goes through, and they all weren 't feeling well. Monday and Friday, when they play on Sunday or they box on Saturday, whenever it is they don 't like equal the balance it 's like no i 'm the superior being, so we 're going to show you who 's boss that 's how it works. but God looks at us in our finite ability and in our weakness, and He gives us his strength because He calls us to himself. notice verse thirty, even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall re- shall, young men shall utterly fall and then notice verse 31 as we finish that he gives strength and how does he renew us in his hope notice verse 31 but they that wait upon the lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings as eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint now of course this is a picture none of us are going to physically fly and in there, the laws of science and aging are still in play in this world until God returns. So there's some of us that will not leave tonight and run a marathon. Like you're not going to be able to toss your keys in your car and jog home. Most of us are not going to be able to do that this evening. It's not just about physical. In fact, he addresses that in verse 30. He says, even young people, even the young men, they faint and fall. But notice, notice who it is that gets strength. The, the qualifier... Of those that get strength are those that wait on the Lord. The word wait there is the same as we talked about in Habakkuk a couple, the last couple of weeks where it says wait for it. And he doesn't just mean like tap your watch and sit like you're in the waiting room of the doctor. He means long for it, like a child on Christmas morning, want it, desire it. He says those that wait and long for and desire the Lord will receive his strength. They will mount up and be able to fly. They run without weariness. Bodies may get tired, but he lifts their soul and spirit and mind. They walk continually for the Lord, but they don't faint. Why? Because the Lord does not forsake his own. The rest of the book of Isaiah, it does talk about a coming Messiah. It does talk about the glories of Christ when he comes. But it begins in chapter 40 in which he offers comfort to those that are hurting and those that are weak and those that are vulnerable and those that are in darkness and their circumstance is a struggle. But he offers comfort, but then he also offers renewal. The the comfort of God is not always a blanket that tucks us in, but rather sometimes it's a coat and a jacket to help us go out in the cold and continue to serve. Sometimes it's a nap, it's renewed from a a meal, it's nourishment that He gives us through Himself spiritually so that we can rise and walk and live for Him while we wait for His ultimate correcting of all things. And so God's comfort is not that He places us in circumstances of ease, but rather that He guides and walks with us through moments of difficulty. Because the people that read Isaiah first... We're 70 years out from the physical fulfillment of this promise. The people that read it, even in that moment, they returned, some of them, but it was years before the temple was rebuilt. 70 more years before many of those others returned. 70 years after that until the walls were totally rebuilt. People inhabited Israel before Jerusalem was ever inhabited again. And years and years later, 400 years later before the fulfillment of Jesus Christ came to offer this true final hope of salvation. And so it's not always a removal from difficulty, but it is strength that He gives. And aren't you glad tonight you can find renewal not just in the issues and circumstance of life, but renewal is found in the character and nature of your God. And how do you access that? by active relationship with Him. You don't have to wait for God to dump some physical blessing in your lap. Even in a moment of weakness or trial or struggle, God renews, but He renews with Himself. He renews with His character that does not change. He renews with His nature that is everlasting. And so as we enter this season of Christmas and Advent as we think about waiting on the Lord to return to set all things right and new. And you can be talking about just this year. So how am I going to face these last three or four weeks of 2022 or I guess two weeks now of 2022? How, 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 what has my life been like? What are the holidays going to be like? You can, you can look at it that way. What is, how is God going to renew me now? And ultimately, how am I going to press forward and walk for God for the rest of my life until He returns well he offers comfort and he offers comfort because of a relationship that i have with him by the redemption offered in jesus christ and he offers renewal not always of my immediate circumstance but always through my relationship with the character of the perfect and holy god and aren't you thankful for this beautiful picture this evening this passage May we portray that to those around us. May we find renewal. I'm not sure what all is going on in each of your lives this evening. There's never a time that you could read Isaiah 40:31, mount up with wings as eagles and run and not faint. There's never a time you read that and you're not. Nobody reads that and like, nah. I could. I'll pass. No, we all want that. We all want renewal, but it comes through our relationship with our Father. And so. Ask yourself, have you spent time in relationship with Him this week? Waiting is not sitting. Waiting is actively longing for and desiring and building what we have in our relationship with Him. So let's do that as we close uh, this year out and as we look toward this Christmas and Advent season. Think, how is it that the world around us, my life, or whatever circumstance we describe but we grow in Him, and we're thankful for it. Let's be closed in prayer tonight, and uh, thank the Lord for His mercy and His hope. A a short Bible study tonight, and next week we'll have um, the the music, mainly music next week, and ministering to us in song, the joy of uh, those Christmas messages that we'll hear in, in song. Bring somebody with you next week, and I know a number of our church family has prepared, and And gotten ready to minister in that way. At the end, we'll have a just a short word from God's uh, from Scripture, and uh, then coming up after that, that that uh, Christmas candlelight service. If you would be be preparing your own heart for that, it'll be a salvation based theme. But for those of us that are Christians, a reminder of what we have in salvation. For those that are lost, it's a picture of the light that we find is going to be from John chapter 1, read over that the next few weeks and bring somebody with you, is that God promises us to give us His light through Jesus Christ. And so we're praying for our church that each of these things will take hold and that God will use them and um, we'll grow together in Him. Let's be dismissed in prayer tonight. Father, we are grateful for You. And um, help us not to lose sight of Your greatest gift and treasure that you offer us is not relief from burden, um, but it is strength to uh, give it to you, to be carried together, to be yoked together with the God of the universe. And may we see that and find it. There's some of us this evening that need to be renewed in our spiritual lives. And that first comes from a reminder of who you are that you are in control of all things, that there is nothing that compares to you and that your ways are beyond understanding and that ultimately we find our rest and comfort in you and who you are. And we praise you for this. Minister to those that need it this week in ways that we cannot and help us as a church family to do our best to share the love and character of Christ with those around us and uh, our families and friends during this next few weeks as we celebrate um, your coming and are waiting on you again. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.